Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon. This is episode number 24. Today in the show, Dan and I are going to be discussing our final preparations for the 2014 season and our plans for our opening weekend hunts. The season is finally here, so get ready and enjoy. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. Today on the show, it's just me and my co-host, Dan. And Dan, how are you doing? Mark, I missed you, man. That was like, what, two weeks? Yeah, we've been away for a little while here. Man, it's, you're, you're kind of like a dog. Exp- you know, like you go away on a vacation, you're like, man, what, I wonder what my dog's doing. I hope he's not like going to the bathroom on the carpet. Maybe this is maybe that's a bad analogy, but <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's not too far from what I've been doing. I've had a kind of a rough spell here while I've been gone too. Um as you know, and a couple people probably know, I uh we had a little bit of a leave of absence here from the podcast in part because I was out on my elk hunting trip, which we'll talk about here in a little bit, which was awesome. Um but then our our episode this week got delayed because I had my wisdom teeth taken out. And um I thought that was going to be like a one-day thing, and I'd be back and going by the next day, but it has not. It has not been that way at all. I've been uh, pretty pretty under the weather, um, all doped up on Vicodin and all swollen up and stuff. So today was the first day I could really kind of talk and sound halfway normal. Um, so I think I sound decent now, but I'm probably not quite the same cheerful self I am. But uh, if you can forgive me for that, Dan, I'll try to make it through this as best as possible. Yeah, I'll let it slide this time, but um, the next time you get any teeth pulled, maybe you should check with me first. I know. I really should. I should have checked with someone about this. It was I've been I've been putting off getting I've been putting off getting these teeth taken out for a while. I knew the wisdom teeth had to come out for for, for quite a bit of time now, but there was always, you know, one reason or another I could push it off. And um, finally my wife just kept hammering me home about the fact you just gotta get done, gotta get done. So I finally scheduled it and went in and so I go in there Tuesday morning and you know from everything I've heard they're gonna knock me out I'm gonna fall asleep they're gonna yank teeth out and then I'll be going pretty strong soon after that well just before the surgery they bring me into this room they sit me down and they put up these x-ray pictures of my mouth up on the wall the doctor says okay see here here's your teeth there's your four wisdom teeth now do you see those bottom two wisdom teeth and do you see that line that runs on the bottom well that line is your jawbone and your two bottom wisdom teeth, I think they said are I think they call it impacted or something. They're the roots of the wisdom teeth are so they've been in there for so long, they've dug down into my jawbone. So like my wisdom teeth roots have gone like halfway through my jawbone. And there's a nerve that runs through that part of your jaw. And so the doctor tells me, he's like, So because of that, when we go in there to remove the teeth, there's like a 15 to 20% chance that when we do that, we could damage that nerve and you'll lose all feeling in your bottom lip and chin for the rest of your life. <laughs> yeah. And I'd like, I had this look on my face, like utter shock. And like, how do you tell me this two minutes before surgery? There's nothing I can do now. I was just like, 
paralyzed with fear. <laughs> so what, what did he do? Give you like a slap on the back and then say, oh, you're going to be just fine. Let's go. Yeah, pretty much. He, like, but you're never going to feel your face again. Yeah, he wheels me away. And then just before he's about to put me under, I, I go to him. I'm like, you know, I'm not particularly excited about this. And then he looks at me and shakes his head. He's like, they never are. They never are. <laughs> and um, the next thing I remember, yeah, they knocked me out. And a little bit later, I remember seeing, like, I must have been woken up again because I remember seeing, like, a bed. And then the next thing I remember after that is, like, a wheelchair. And I guess in between all that, after I got the teeth pulled, I guess I was awakened or awoken enough. I guess I had asked the doctor, like, seven or eight different times, did my nerve, did the nerve get damaged? Can I feel my face still? Is my face going to be okay? And I guess he kept answering it over and over and over again. He kept telling me it was fine, but I kept asking him. So whenever he saw my wife finally, he told her, he told her that, hey, He's asked about this repeatedly. I'm not going to answer him anymore, but he's fine. (laughs) (laughs) But I was pretty nervous. And then while I was all drugged up, I don't know how this happened, but I ended up taking selfies of myself laying on the table with the IV still hooked up with like this dazed and confused look in my face. And I'm snapping pictures of myself. They look pretty ridiculous. So (laughs) I don't know. Did you happen to have a dream like in the movie The Big Lebowski? (laughs) No, I did not. No, that would have been cool. (laughs) It would have. But no, no, no crazy dreams. I just, uh, man, I've just been a lot of pain, a lot of swelling. Can't really eat anything. I've just been eating soup and Jello. Um, <laughs> but you know, trying to trying to get by. I'm supposed to leave tomorrow morning for Ohio to start hunting. I'm a little worried about my condition, but we're gonna try to make it work. So, are you, are you a man, Mark? I am. I am. So you're gonna deal with it, and I you're am. gonna go to Ohio. This is all true. I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna make it work. Well, uh, just as long as I'm not like doped up on Vicodin and fall out of the tree stand, I think I'll be all right. So I'll be wearing a harness. Yeah, that's for sure. That's for sure. So that said, though, the whole Ohio thing—that's really what I want to talk about here today, Dan. Is talk about our early season hunting plans. Um, but before that, I did want to touch on two things. First thing, you know, it's the start of hunting season. My season kicks off this weekend. Um, your season in Iowa starts next week, and most everybody else is starting to hunt now. And so we're kind of transitioning to this new portion of the season for the podcast. And because of that, I really want to continue to try to get the word out about the podcast. And from everything we've been hearing from people, you know, it sounds like you guys, the listeners, have been enjoying the show. And we really, really appreciate that. But we're hoping for a little help now to get that word out. So we're going to run a little bit of a contest over the course of the next week. And what we're going to ask you to do is to post a short review, just a couple sentences, either on your Facebook page or on like a message board or forum like Archery Talk or Iowa Whitetails or Kitumay.com, any one of those forums, and just mention a little bit about the Wired Hunt podcast and what you like about it. And if you do that, take a screenshot of that little review you write and email that to me at mark at wiredhunt.com. I'm going to enter you into a drawing, and next week I'm going to draw a winner, and that winner will get a Wired Hunt hat, a Trophy Ridge static stabilizer, and a three-pack of Carbon Express lighted knocks. So, cool little prize package there. All we ask you to do is post a little something on Facebook or on a message board mentioning the Wired Hunt podcast, and then email me that screenshot. So, Am I out of the contest? You know, technically you probably are, but I'd still encourage you, Dan, to go ahead and do it anyways. Okay, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, if you guys can do that, we would really, really appreciate it. Um We'd love to get more people listening to the podcast and hopefully help more people as the season goes along. So with that plug out of the way, though, the next thing I wanted to talk about before we dive into whitetails is recapping 
our big western hunts. You know, the last time we had a podcast, Dan, you were still in Nebraska hunting mule deer, and I was just a day away from leaving for Idaho. So I think our listeners are pretty curious about how those hunts went. So Dan, maybe you can kick us off here by starting out with the conclusion of your mule deer hunt out there in Nebraska. Right. Um, I'll just keep this short because I, I want to hear your story more than I want to tell my story again. But, um, I had, after I talked, uh, after the, we recorded that last podcast, I had two more days out there. The first day or the, the day after, um, I had my opportunity, uh, at, um, taking a long shot at a couple, uh, mule deer does. I spent a lot of time around, uh, crop circles and, um, you know, that, that day I, I really didn't have the opportunity at what I felt as a comfortable shot, um, on any mule deer does. Next day I started off kind of in the same, um, the same place that I ended that night. I saw probably, oh, close to 12 to 15 different, uh, mule deer does and, uh, I played cat and mouse with one and I got real close and I did this long spot and stalk and uh, it didn't work out. Then I hiked uh, an additional, you know, five miles back into this emptiness basically and uh, I, I watched an antelope come from uh, probably about three quarters of a mile away through the spotting scope. I didn't think I was going to get an opportunity at him. Um, long story short, he kept working my way. I jumped off this hill um, and uh, basically glassed him, and we, we kind of played chess in this grass until finally um, I came up over this hill. I spotted him, but he kind of spotted me. I dropped down, and um, I could see him through my binoculars through the grass. He was looking in a different direction. He snorted, which I didn't know antelope do, just like deer do, and he was trying to make his way around me to see what I smell me basically. So as he's doing that, I back, I was, I was backing up away from his original position. So when, as he's coming around behind me, I would be closer to him. He moved faster than I thought he was moving. I looked behind me. He's standing at probably 20 yards, 25 yards. As I draw back, he kind of does this thing where he, he does like two or three bounds. He turns around. I, uh, I think I, it was my 40, 30 or 40 yard pin I put on him. Um, I couldn't range him because the grass was in the way and I was getting inaccurate readings. And yeah. I felt, you know, if I stand up, I'm, he's gone. So I drew back. I got to where I had a clean shot at him and I missed right under his belly. Oof. But I tell you right now, it was one of the coolest things. I would, I, after I missed him, I sat there and I laughed for probably 10 minutes. I don't know why, <laughs> but I was just so happy that I even had that opportunity that I just, I, I sat there for, you know, 10 minutes laughing and then probably another 15 minutes, just like watching him in the distance, you know, just kind of slowly making his way away. But it was awesome. Well, it's great that you had an opportunity at least. I know that that was a, a serious challenge of a hunt and yeah. uh, definitely not easy to even get that close to, to be within bow range of an antelope is no easy task from, from everything I've heard. So, Oh, and it, I don't know if I got lucky for, I just, I, I made the right moves. I had the wind in my favor the entire time. He, every time he would disappear, I would make a move and kind of guess to where he was going. 
um, I guessed right, but he made he made. If I, I I truly feel that if I would have been able to not or get an accurate reading on my rangefinder, I would have been able to uh, um, probably. I mean, I, I was I was dead eye as far as um, left and right was concerned. Just no distance and in that wide open. I'm not used to that. So that wide open distance is hard to judge. Oh yeah, so true. Well, elk, 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 elk story, elk, <laughs> elk story. <laughs> Well, I can uh, I can definitely fill in on the elk story. Um, it's not nearly as animated as my original tellings of the story were. Now that I can't quite smile or laugh and stuff <laughs> as I usually can, but um, but yeah, my elk trip was everything you could ever dream of. Um, it really was unbelievable. Everything we talked about, you know, the couple days before I left on my trip, all the things I talked about, that all happened plus more than I ever could have imagined, really. Um, compared to my first trip out there, this was night and day better. Um, and I think it was for two reasons. Number one, we hit it. We hit the rut right on. I mean, they were, they were rutting hard. And then number two, me and my, my buddy, I think we really kind of figured out how to hunt in this area. And because of that, we were right up, we were right in the elk every day. So, um, long story short, if you didn't see on Facebook or anywhere else yet, I did kill an elk. Uh, I killed my first elk ever. It was a nice 5x5 five five Brian Chandler bull, um, and so that was pretty incredible. But the hunt itself was was pretty awesome, too. Um, so I'll give kind of the, the Cliff Notes version. The whole trip, you know, we hiked in there, you know, several miles back into the wilderness. We backpacked in there, just me and my friend Andy. And um, the first two days, we were in the elk pretty good. Um, I think every morning, every evening, we were, you know, pretty close or within shooting range of branch with Brian Chandler bulls. Um, they were bugling like crazy. Had a lot of close calls. And that second day, at one point, we actually followed these two big old bulls right next in this dark timber where they're bedded. Got within like 30 yards of two mega bulls, but um, neither one of us could get a shot because of branches in the way. Um, but but really an awesome experience, just having these elk so close, just screaming their heads off. Like my whole ch- it was like your chest is vibrating because of how loud these bugles are and how close they are. It was just insane. Um, but we had times where we had six, seven, eight different bulls surrounding us, all bugling, and it was just chaos. Really, just the most incredible hunting I've ever experienced. But day three, um, we had moved up in this area. There was a couple bugling bulls first thing in the morning, and so our plan, what our strategy had been, was in the mornings try to hear where they're bugling, and then hightail it as fast as we could to get just ahead of them with the wind still in our favor, but get in between where those elk were and where they were trying to get to. Um, we didn't want to call very much because I think these elk were getting decently pressured in the area and they weren't responding to calls too well. So we didn't call unless we were really, really close to them. So we moved up as close as we could get to this bull, thought we were going to intercept him. We were set up on him for probably a half hour, 40 minutes, and he kept bugling his head off, but he was just over the straw and we could never get him to commit. So after wasting most of our morning on that one, we decided to bail on him turn and start going up this hill towards another bugle feeling kind of down because we kind of wasted most of our good morning time on that on that elk and now we're going up this other hill and we bump an elk we see one that's standing top of this ridge looking right down at him he starts barking at us we're like well shoot we just really screwed up this morning so we turn around again start heading the other direction and we'd been cow calling a little bit and as we come over this hill all of a sudden we just see antlers over the crest of the hill we both just freeze and you can see the tops of these antlers and just like the top of a nose and eyeballs, maybe 70, 80 yards away staring at us. 
and it's obviously a, a big bull elk. And I'm staring at it. He's staring at us, and Andy's right behind me. And we just had, kind of had a standoff for like five minutes or a couple minutes at least. We just all were just staring at each other. Didn't move. Finally, he slowly turned, and he looked away, and then looked back at us, and looked away, looked back at us. Eventually, he got to the point where he thought we weren't anything too dangerous because he slowly started to walk away. And as he slowly started to walk away, I grabbed an arrow, knocked an arrow, got clipped on, and then I started slowly sneaking towards him. So every time he would go behind a bush or a little pine tree or anything like that, I would start sneaking. And you know, I really realized on this trip is you can get away with a lot of noise. These elk are just so used to other elk being noisy in the woods and out there in the wilderness that your noise is moving through the brush and stuff doesn't really bother them too much. So I wasn't afraid to make noise. So every time he couldn't see me, I started crouching, sneaking in there, sometimes sprinting up to get closer, closing that distance. And this took maybe 10 minutes where he kind of paralleled me, went into this dark timber. I called to him. He came back out of the timber. He started cutting across um, this meadow again. And at this point, he finally got to the point where, okay, I'm probably going to be able to get a shot here. And I started trying to range him. And just like your situation, when I was trying to range him, I kept getting grass. It kept telling me he's 17 yards away or 22 yards away or something, but I knew he was like 50 or 60. Um, so I was like, I can't get a good range on him. I'm just going to have to move up until I'm absolutely sure I'm within shooting range. So there was one more big pine tree. And I, th- I told myself as soon as he gets that pine tree, I'm sprinting. Like I'm going to run as fast as I can, as close as I can to close that distance and get within shooting range. And then once he comes around that tree, I'm going to have to you know, make a judgment call on how far away he is and then take that shot. And that's what I did. He got up on the pine tree. I hightailed it as close as I could get to him. He came around the tree, and I guessed him at 40 yards. And put the pin on him and let it rip. And it ended up being right on because I uh, double-lunged him. He ran about 100 yards and tipped over. Wow. So that was... Uh, Did you lose your mind? You know, not not really the way I thought I would. It was kind of more like disbelief. Yeah. Um, you know, right after I shot him, I, when I... I shot him, I saw him run off, but then he kind of went over a hill, and um, I thought I saw him like stop next to this tree, and I thought he tipped over it, and I saw branches kind of shaking around the tree, so I thought he was down there, but I wasn't 100% sure, um, so because of that, I was still a little nervous, we went and checked out the shot site, um, couldn't find blood or the arrow or anything for a while, so I was a little nervous, um, finally we did find the arrow, and I saw it got good penetration and, and good blood and everything, so I felt better, but it was really just kind of, I couldn't believe it happened. I don't know if I never expected this to actually happen, or at least not so soon, not in my second year. Um, when we finally got down there to where I thought he had typed over, and, and there he was. I was just kind of like, holy smokes, dead elk, dead elk. And I just kind of stood there just staring at it. Like, and I don't know how to describe it. It was wild. It was It was very cool. It was crazy. Um but I think the, the biggest part of the entire experience, more than the hunt itself, was actually the work that happened after the hunt. Yeah. Um, that was what was really um, what stuck with me. You know, all the work that goes into getting him gutted, skinned, quartered, and then packing him back to the vehicle. Um, I shot that elk at around 9 a.m. in the morning, and we didn't get back to the vehicle that night with our final load of meat till 9 p.m. That was with two guys. Yeah, there's two of us, and we worked for 12 hours straight. So how far? How far was the hike from the truck to the kill site? It, you know, as the crow flies, it was somewhere around three miles. But it was so it was so many steep ridges and canyons and mountains we were going up and down. It had to have been much much more than that if you actually yeah. measured the the distance walked. Um, 
because I've done a lot of backpacking in my day, and um, this is definitely the most physically exhausted I've ever been in my entire life. After that uh, 12 hours of work, it was a serious haul, um, but an incredible feeling of accomplish- accomplishment when we finally had it all done and we were back, and I uh, got the meat back and preserved everything, and none, none of the meat went bad, so I was very proud of that and, and just really uh, happy to have pulled off a, a DIY hunt like that. I think I'm going to have to tag along next year. I man, I would recommend it. It's unbelievable. I mean, it is. I, I like I said last time, there aren't really the right words to to describe it, but it's just like like turkey hunting because they're you know so vocal and so interactive. But turkey hunting times two hundred on steroids um, <laughs> while in the mountains. I mean, it's just uh, wow. It's awesome. So yeah. it was an awesome way to start the 2014 season, and uh, very very um, thankful that it all worked out. And now excited to uh, see if we can't keep that luck going on to the whitetails. Are you going to get him mounted? I'm going to get him Euro mounted. Euro mounted. Cool. Yep. Cool. Yep. So dropped his uh, skull and antlers off at the uh, taxidermist a couple days ago. And um, hopefully we'll have him back here in a few weeks, actually, is what, what he told me. So Cool. I'm proud of you, Mark. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. I um. It was pretty cool. Pretty cool. I hope that uh, I hope that all overflows to the whitetails this year. That luck you got going for you. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. And, and I think that's probably a perfect segue for us to move into the real meat and potatoes of what we want to talk about today, um, which is whitetails and the start of the new season. Um, I really do hope that luck follows follows me into this next weekend because I'm going to Ohio tomorrow morning, like I mentioned, and. Uh, me and Josh are going to be chasing some of those big Ohio Ohio bucks. So, I don't know. I'm pretty excited about that. But uh, maybe before I dive into my plans for this weekend and then next week's hunts, I'm curious, Dan, when do you start hunting? And uh, what what are your plans for those first couple hunts? Well, um, this year I will be able to hunt October 1st, opening night, uh, on the public land that is uh, by my house. I'm going to give public land hunting a, sh- a couple sh- uh, shots this year. Um, I've done a lot of scouting in the area, you know, basically just driving around in my truck. Um, I've done some scouting in some particular spots, but um, I'm going to be able to, you know, my, my goal is just to, to shoot some does on the public property. I'm not, although I've seen one, what I would call potential shooter, um, I've got, uh, you know, I just want to, I want to shoot some shoot some does and it allows me the opportunity to hunt during the week. Now during the weekends, I'll be going back to, um, my main farm, the good, the good farm that I have, um, back uh, near my hometown. And, um, that's where I'm going to be doing the, the early season hunting, uh, as far as, um, you know, the first weekend of October, the second one, Ryan, the guy that I'm going to be filming for this year, he uh, he'll be coming down the weekend of the 18th for an, what we could, I guess you consider an early season hunt, okay. um, and then I'll be hunting the 25th, and then um, my vacation starts uh, basically uh, Halloween night, and uh, I'll be hunting November 1st through the 16th. I shouldn't say I'll be hunting; I'll be filming Ryan, um, and if he kills, then um, then then it will be my turn. So. Um, Basically, like I said in, in other uh, blogs and other uh, um, podcasts, I, I'm uh, I'm giving I'm basically giving up my season uh, to film 
uh, Ryan and help him get his uh, his buck. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Now that said, though, it sounds like you are going to get to hunt um, yep. your good spots this first weekend. Next weekend, I guess it would be. Yep. Um, you feeling pretty good about that? Do you have a Do you have a spot picked out or some some ideas of what you might want to do those first couple hunts there? Yeah, I mean, I've been looking at the wind directions and uh, base, and you know, trying to figure out if the food is going to be in or if it's going to be gone. And that kind of makes it, you know, that has to help me make my decision. You know, if the crops are in, if the crops are out, um, where I'll, where I'll be hunting. But, uh, I'll be honest with you this year. Okay. So like the past three years I've had a mega giant, like something close, you know, deer close to 200 inches, uh, for the past, um, you know, for the past four years on, on trail cameras this year, I don't have that, but I like it better because I have probably seven deer that are, that, um, since my last card pull are still on trail cameras. Uh, and we're talking five, six, seven year old bucks. So the age structure is awesome this year. I've never had anything like that. That is awesome. And th- those are pictures you're getting in September, right? Uh, right. Um, all, they, every one that I've gotten so far, um, minus one, w- there's one buck that disappeared. But uh, as far as um, trail cameras are concerned, I've captured um, all six of them hardhorned. That is good news. Right. I always, it right. always seems like to me that if you can catch them in September once they're hardhorned, there's a, a really good chance that that's a buck that's sticking around your property for most of the hunting season. Um, right. that, that relocation has happened already during that first week of September, last week, of August. So I'm glad to hear you got some big boys still hanging out. Right. And the thing that I'm a little weary about, but not at the same time. Okay. So last summer, huge drought, really dry, not a lot of rain. The, the acorn trees barely dropped anything. This year, with the wet summer that we had and the huge amount of moisture that we had from the winter, the trees are dropping acorns like crazy. I mean, I've never seen anything like it. Crazy amount of of acorns, Um, which last year, the crops went out. The bucks seemed to disappear. They went to other food sources. They didn't have the acorns, so they were. it was hard for me to, uh, to find them. But this year, the crops, once they go out, oh, man, they're going to have a ton of food still in the timber. Yeah, it's just going to be a matter of figuring out where they're, which ridge full of acorns they're hitting and then be there, right? Yep, just run those trail cameras, check them every weekend now. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, now that it's hunting season, I'm going to be checking these trail cameras every weekend, one time every weekend. And uh, um, if – what I find on these trail cameras determines where I'm going to hunt. And so, so that early season strategy for you then is run your trail cameras and then figure out which food source they're closest to and then assume that that's where they're going to be feeding and then start setting up on those types of areas. Is that about right? Yeah, for the most part. For the most part. If I get some kind of activity, um, I'll pull trail cameras from other areas that I, that I are dead, so to speak, and I'll move more trail cameras into the area where I'm getting pictures of these mature bucks in hopes to, to basically triangulate their position. And then that's where I'm hunting. I'll find a, a trail or I'll hopefully have a tree stand already set up in that area from you know, historic, uh, you know, historical data from other seasons. But, um, but yeah, that's, 
work those trail cameras, move them in when you move more into the area, when you have a, um, a shooter that's uh, either making an appearance on another camera or you see him from the road or from uh, a different tree stand and start that cat and mouse game. Yeah, so I'm curious. I've got an opinion on this, but I want to hear yours first and then I'll dive in. Um, but where do you stand when it comes to how aggressive you get in this first part of October, mid-October, um, are you going to, it sounds like you're, you're willing to start that cat and mouse game and really get after it. Um, are you being aggressive this time of year or are you going to be holding off at least on your better spots until later in October or November? Ooh, man, that's hard because it just depends on what the trail cameras are saying. Um, if there's a buck in the area or I see him, let's say uh, Friday night, I get to my stand. And I see a buck in a different in the next area or a different area making his way. You better believe I'm going to be in that area the next day. But I'm not going to be blindly jumping into bedding areas or um, areas that I haven't um, done any scouting in or there's no sign. Um, it, you know, I've hunted this you know a couple of these properties long enough now to where I, I've I've learned the hard way on where to go and how to hunt. But, um, but you know, I'm not making any Hail Marys, if that makes any sense. Yeah, you know, it does. Um, yeah, I'm not too different from that. Um, my, my whole frame of mind around the early season, really the whole season in general, is I, I take a look at the first few days of the season. I'm willing to go into some of my better spots just because those deer have not been pressured in a long time. They're still sticking to their regular patterns. Um, so the first couple nights in Ohio, first couple nights in Michigan, I'm going to be heading into better areas. Maybe not necessarily the absolute best, but some of my better spots that should be um, you know, close to a good food source, which should allow for a good evening, early season hunt. Um, as soon as that those first couple hunts are done, though, I'm backing way off. And I'm not really going to be pushing into any of my good areas until, again, late October. Um the only thing that could change that could be what you said, that being a daylight sighting or daylight trail camera picture that makes me think that there is a mature deer moving during daylight right now in this area. I'm at the point now where if I do have that kind of sign or that kind of, um, you know, indicator, you got to move in, you got to hunt that deer right away. But otherwise I'm not going to be pushing it. Um, so my plan for this weekend in Ohio we're going down there, Josh and I, and we're not going to hunt in the mornings. We're going to hunt just Saturday night and Sunday night. And I don't know if we've talked about this before, Dan, or not, but I don't like to hunt Monday, or not Monday mornings. I don't like to hunt mornings during October for the most part um, because from what I've found, and I actually just started doing this last year, um, is that morning hunts in many cases are pretty low odds. A lot of those mature bucks are, are moving back to bed before daylight. And so if you're heading in there to go hunt in the morning, even if you're getting to stand an hour and a half before dark or before daylight, there's still a good chance of bumping that deer. Um, and the odds of actually encountering a good buck in the morning after daylight, it's just pretty, pretty low odds. And I would rather minimize those potential risks in the mornings, have better hunts in the evenings, and then reduce that overall pressure until later in October when I think those morning hunts can, can be better. Um, so that's something that I actually wrote a full article about in the most recent issue of North American Whitetail. Um, so I think I much more eloquently describe my uh, my reasons for that in that article. Um, but that's something that I'm thinking about right now is avoiding those mornings, hunting the evenings, and um, 
So this weekend, it's going to be not great conditions, though, in Ohio. It's going to be pretty warm, um, like 80 degrees in the evening. So what I'm looking at is a low-impact stand site where I can get to an area where there might be deer transitioning out of their bedding areas to food. Um, but I don't want to be pushing anything close to the bedding area. So there's a couple different stand sites that I think we can hunt with the easterly wind that looks like we're going to have. Um, and these are both stands that we can get to while walking the edge of a cornfield in and then just hunting the edge of these fingers. We've got these two big fingers of timber that come out of a big block of timber out into these crop fields. And the deer typically transition out and along those heading out to feed. So I think that me and Josh can both get set up in some decent kind of transition areas um, where they'll stage a little bit before heading out to feed in some of the larger fields out past us. And uh, I think it's a, a situation where we'll be safe with the wind. We won't need to push too close to really um, worry about bumping anything, but we'll still have odds of potentially seeing, seeing something during daylight, um, especially since we're in, you know, our, our main property has got standing corn and... I think these deer are feeling pretty comfortable moving all through there during daylight. We have tons of daylight trail camera pictures of big bucks out there because there's just so much cover. So I think there's a decent chance of seeing something, but uh, I'm not necessarily you know, going to put any money on it given how hot it's going to be. But we're yeah. going to get out there. We're going to give it a shot and um, check our couple cameras that are out there, which would give us a little bit more intel. And then after those two hunts, we're going to bail out of there and then not come back till probably late October. So. That's a uh, that's the high level plan for this weekend. I'm excited to get out there. Excited to see you know just to be in the woods and um, kind of see what things are looking like. Right. I just want to go back to uh, morning hunts a moment, yeah. and uh, I I agree with most of what you what you said as far as um, uh, you know low impact, not going in and, and you know jumping something that uh, is coming back from a food source. And when I say I hunt mornings. I I go to stands that are easily accessible. Um, you know they they're they're going to be right off of a deep ravine or on a um, let's see that's one example or off a two track or um, off of a creek where the access routes are very very easy to get to um, and. You're quiet going in. You have the good wind. I'm not going to be ultra aggressive, um, you know, going into a giant, you know, stopping through the middle of the timber where I'm not going to be sitting all day, um, just kind of going in, waiting for them to come back to bed. And uh, most of the morning hunts, early season, honestly, I'll uh, I'll be looking to get a doe. Yeah, yeah. No, I think a lot of that makes sense. I um. I think something else you, you mentioned being your access routes is something super, super important at all times of the year, but right. especially in the early season, because right now you have the opportunity if you hunt smart to keep the pressure relatively low on your local deer. Right. Um, but if you start getting careless, if you start tromping around very quickly, you can change the whole dynamic of your property and change the way your hunting can be for the, for the next couple of weeks or months. Um, right. So, you know, I, I really stress, especially in the early season. Be really, really careful about how you get in and out. Um, and then when it comes to being aggressive, we talked about being aggressive with our stand placement. Another thing I would recommend is um, you know, not being aggressive. I'd recommend not being aggressive with calling. Um, I actually wrote an article about this on Wired Hunt this week. At least in my opinion, I believe that in the early season, you really need to be careful with how you're calling. Um, 
for me, aggressive calls are really something that I'm saving for the rut time periods, somewhere around late October and November. This time of year, I'm really just trying, if I'm going to do any calling at all, it's just going to be like a curiosity type call. So maybe a light contact grunt, um, maybe a light bleat, something like that. Something that might just say, hey, I'm a deer and I'm over here. But yep. I'm, I'm not going to be trying anything crazy um, because this time of year, deer just aren't doing those aggressive calls. They're not having big knockdown fights with you know rattling sequences and stuff. So that kind of stuff isn't natural. So if you start doing that kind of thing right now, it's going to spook a lot of deer. So um, and it's important to just be careful when it comes to not getting too aggressive with pushing the bedding ears, not too aggressive with how you're calling. Um, and then, of course, you know, with how you're entering and, and exiting stand sites, you got to be careful there, too. Right. Um, I'm not even bringing my I don't even bring my rattling antlers with me until uh, late October. Uh, and as far as a grunt call, the only time I'm using a grunt call in the early season is if I see a deer, a see a buck worth calling at because, um, even though they're not aggressive, there still is a pecking order in the timber. And, um, I've honestly heard deer snort wheeze the very first week in October. Wow. And there's, I mean, you can see it from mineral stations all summer long. The big buck comes right in and he, he takes over whatever's in that, whatever, whoever's at that mineral station, if he's in the area, he's going right to it. He's going to plant his butt and he's, he's in charge. Yeah. You know that, like you said, the pecking order, the pecking order is definitely very real. And, um, I'm right there with you in regards to calling. I don't do any calling either unless I see a buck that I want to bring in a little bit closer and only in those circumstances will I do a little bit of, a little bit of grunting. Um, so we've talked a little bit about, you know, stand sites, entry and access, calling, um, our plans for these first couple hunts. I thought I might share a story from last season um, that I think illustrates a number of the different things that I'm thinking about when I'm looking at an early season hunt and kind of how I break that down. Um, so maybe I'll, I'll share the story with you, Dan, a couple of lessons that I learned from it. And um, if you have any questions about why I did stuff or how things went, um, feel free to ask. But hopefully this might illustrate some of the things I think should be considered when going into an early season hunt, like many of us will be over the next couple of days or weeks. Um, so this story was last season at the beginning of the 2013 season, October 5th or 6th, I think, um, it was that first weekend. And I had, you know, as I mentioned before, I typically don't want to go into any of my good areas until maybe those first couple of days of the season or wait till October or November, late October or November. Well, I had seen one of the mature bucks on this farm from a distance while scouting from a long ways away um, with my binoculars. I'd seen him walking across an opening like three days before the season had opened. And then I went and tracked a camera and I got a daylight trail camera picture of the same buck in the same general area again. And this is all in those couple days before the season. So I felt confident that a hunt into one of these better areas was worth doing because I'd had two daylight you know, sightings. Um, or pictures, which give me a pretty clear indicator that, hey, he's moving in the area. It's worth, you know, moving in on him. So I then try to figure, you know, where do I want to hunt? And when it comes to an early season hunt, I'm looking for a couple things. Number one, it's got to be low pressure. So all the low pressure pieces we just talked about, they had to fit that bill. So I didn't want my wind affecting, you know, anything. I didn't want to have to access through bedding cover or do anything that might bump deer. So I was able to find 
Um, one of my stand sites that I really like, I set up particularly or specifically just for an early season hunt like this. I planted a food plot um, with oats and some clovers and some different things that were really going to be attractive early in the year. And then I actually had a box blind, a redneck blind set up right off this food plot a little ways. And then there's a little bedding area not too far off on the other side of that. And so I could, ca- I could catch deer moving off that bedding area and intercept them between the bed and the feed when I was in this redneck blind. And so I had the daylight sighting as this buck. I had a stand site where I know I could get to it safely. I know I could get out of there safely. And I felt pretty good about my chances of not really alerting any other deer in the area. Now, the final thing that kind of all lined up that made me realize I really had to go in there and hunt, <clears throat> excuse me, was, I'm losing my voice. Hold on one second here, Dan. <clears throat> well, I think that's better. Um, so another thing that lined up here was the fact that I had a cold front hitting. And this is another big thing that I really like to pay attention to in the early season and really all year is cold fronts. And I had a front coming in where the temperature was going to drop about 10 to 15 degrees from the previous day's highs. And it was going to bring some precipitation in. So I had all these different things lined up. And when I saw the cold front was hitting on day, I think it was Sunday, I knew that that was the day I had to get in there and hunt. And so I moved in, got everything set up, decided to hunt that spot. One thing, though, was a bit off when I actually decided to go in there and hunt. The wind had changed a little bit. And so where previously I thought I was not going to be in danger of getting winded, now I potentially could. But because the front was hitting, because I had the daylight sightings, because I knew I was on a hot food source, all those things were lined up, I thought I could maybe cut the corner of the on the wind a little bit and get away with a little bit of a risk. And I think sometimes you do need to do that, especially with the wind. Oftentimes, when a mature buck is going to move into a feeding area or to a bedding area, wherever he's headed, he's going to want that wind in his favor. So sometimes you're going to have to hunt a stand where the deer thinks he has the wind in his, in his favor, but you just barely may or may not have it working for you. So in this case, I thought I was going to be right on that edge. And long story short, I got set up. The deer started piling into feed. The the rain hit. The temperatures dropped. The deer were moving on their feet like crazy. And I ended up having two different mature bucks moving that night. One of them was Six Shooter, um, who, you know, many we've talked about him many times before. I ended up killing him later in the year. The other buck was Leaner, who was another deer we've talked about a lot. He moved in, got to within 40 yards of entering a shooting lane where I could have taken him. And everything had paid off. All those risks, all those different conditions that I was looking for in a good early season hunt, everything had lined up except for the last thing. And that was that tricky wind. And what happened was a doe had moved in just to that kind of downwind angle where my wind was blowing. She winded me. And because of that, she blew out the field and blew out the all the deer and, and leaner took off running but if it hadn't been for her all those different little risks and little pieces of the puzzle would have all came together and I, I kind of had a perfect early season setup that just barely didn't work um, but it was one of those situations where I think you know I, I look at all those different pieces of the puzzle and that's what I'm looking for in a perfect early season hunt if I can get those different things to line up that's you know the kind of early season hunt that I want to go on and that's you know when I'm willing to push the limits when I have everything lined up like that right Stay away from those Hail Marys. That's basically what it comes down to. Use the information that your cameras uh, and that your brain is providing you. And, um, you know, if you fail, you fail. That's hunting. But if you're going in there tromping around, making uneducated guesses at what to do, it's your own fault. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, 
I think maybe the bigger one of the big lessons I learned from this was that, you know, while I am pretty risk averse early in the year, sometimes when all the conditions are right, like it was in that case, I'm okay taking a risk. I'm willing to take that risk if all those different pieces are there. And sometimes it's not going to play out right like it did in this situation. But I think the key thing is making sure that if you're going to do that, if you're going to take a risk, make sure it's very informed. Make sure you have all the different pieces of the puzzle and the reasons why. You know, don't, like you said, don't throw a Hail Mary just because. Just because it's the opening day of the season and you want to hunt somewhere, um, good. You know, Don't just dive in there. Make sure you've got good reasons why you're going to move in there because you can do a lot more harm this time of year if right. you're not being smart than, than good. So I think, um, I think with all that said, my plan in Michigan, so I'm hunting Ohio tomorrow and Sunday, and then I'll be back and it opens in Michigan Wednesday night. Um, I could hunt Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, whatever those nights, but it looks like it's going to be pretty hot. We've got a big cold front hitting though on Saturday and it looks like it's going to drop like 15 degrees again. So I'm leaning towards probably not hunting, maybe I'll hunt opening day, but at least not hunting my good area. I think I'm going to wait to hunt my good area until that cold front hits on Saturday and Sunday and uh, move into one of those early season food sources. Um, I planned a couple really nice little food plots that I think will be pulling some deer into an area that I want to hunt. So tentatively, that's what I'm planning on doing um, next weekend. But again, it's really going to come down to what's the wind doing, what's the precipitation, what are the temperatures. Um, I really pay attention to all that a lot this time of year. And so, right. Right. And so we will see. Well, good luck, man. Thank you. I appreciate it. I think um, I should have some kind of updates for uh, for everyone by tomorrow night or Sunday. If nothing else, we'll have some trail camera pictures. Um, Heck yeah. Which would be pretty cool. I'm excited to see. You know, we haven't been down to the least since August. So I'm excited to see what deer are still hanging out there um, now that they're hard-worn and, and deer have kind of moved to their fall territories. So, Right. I just want to cover something real quick about a calling. Yeah. Um, and it's, I've learned every one of these lessons the hard way. And if you see a deer or if a deer, you, you know, I think as a hunter, understanding a deer's body, um, how he's acting, you know, if he's alert, don't call at him. You know, if he's caught your wind, don't call at him. All you've done there is educate him and he's gone. And more than likely, he's gonna because he's already alert. He's gonna pinpoint you in your location, look up at the tree at you, and and then he's gone. Uh, the second one is if there's a deer who is above you, be very very careful on your calling because he's gonna be able to look down and see that there's no deer there unless it's very thick. You know, if it's wide open and he's, a, he's above you, that's a no-no as well. One trick that I've kind of taught myself is to cover the front of my grunt call or turn around to the side to where the exit of the tube is facing away from the deer so it doesn't sound as close. You know, whether, whether that will help a person or not, it's something that I do and I've, um, I've seen success with over the past years. Yeah, I think that's great advice. I I'm 100% right there with you, especially when it comes to um, you know, not overcalling once a deer, you know, once you already have his attention, the worst thing you can do is keep calling to him when he's already right. looking at you. Yep. Um, so I, I learned that lesson with a 180-inch 12-pointer um oh geez, maybe 
four years ago. Uh, he came in, he caught my trail where we walked in or my, my scent. I don't really know. The wind was kind of swirling that night. He kind of got alert. I turned around or he turned around. I grunted. He, he kind of looked back in the area, but it was already in his mind that I've smelled something dangerous and I don't want to go over there. But at the same time, it was the rut. So he kind of wanted to fight and he kind of wanted to breed. But that, that nose and the danger sensor, for the most part, trumps all that stuff. If they know for a fact that, you're, that something dangerous is in that area, you lost. Yeah. And I rattled and snort wheezed and I thought he was going to come back, but he didn't. Yeah, they once you once you lose the game with the nose, it's it's game over. Game over. Yep, yep. Well, I don't know, Dan. I um I might have rambled here a little bit today. I'm still a little bit induced Viking induced rambling here. <laughs> but um, is there anything else you think we should cover when it comes to early season hunts or our basic ideas about early season hunting to make sure we leave the the listeners here with some sound, helpful advice? Be observant. Uh, be keep your eyes open. Don't. And this is what I've learned, you know, it's like, it is, it is the truth. You know, that saying, um, when the, the, uh, the young bull says to the old bull, Hey, let's run down there and let's, let's breed a couple of those, those cows. And the old bull says, well, why don't we walk down and breed them all? Once I've started learning this patience game with a deer and, and not calling all the time and not grunting all the time and not making these hardcore moves, you know, stupid moves and, and being patient, being observant and waiting for the right time to hit an area. I've seen more deer from the stand than ever before. So, and it, I tell you what, it sucks to not hunt an area knowing there's a big buck there on the wrong wind, but but it, it will it will help you in the long run. And you know, I'm not the kind I've 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 never shot a giant, giant deer. I haven't shot a ton of bucks, but I I do have experience on what I've what a person can do wrong and I've done those things. So take my word for the for that. Yeah, it's it's all about the timing. There really right. is nothing for me too, there was no bigger paradigm shift for me. And then when I started realizing that there has to be the right timing for everything mm-hmm. and that quality of hunts is more important than quantity. And so making sure that you're timing your hunts, right? Timing your strategies, right? And doing all those things at the right times to ensure quality hunts versus going out there every single time you can and being stupid. Um, it's tough to do. Like you said, sometimes you want to be in there, you know, there's a deer or you want to hunt every night off you have. Um, but that more oftentimes than not does not lead to success on these big mature deer. So, so I think, yeah, if we leave the listeners with anything today, it's be patient, be careful, hunt smart. And, um, you know, take some chances during the early season. If you have reasons to do so, if there's evidence and pieces of the puzzle that lead to the fact that there should be a good chance at a mature deer or whatever, whatever kind of deer it is you're trying to shoot go in and make that move. But make sure you're very careful and don't get too excited and blow things for the rest of the season. Right. Right. 
Well, I think uh, with that being said, then, Dan, I think we'll wrap things up here. I'm just going to add one quick thing. Yeah. And, uh, well, two, actually. One, um, if you want to read more about my uh, trip out to western Nebraska and uh, take a look at the bucks that I'll be chasing, uh, myself and Ryan are going to be chasing this fall, you can go to um, ninefingerchronicles.com and check out the blog. And the second thing and the most important thing is to wear your safety harness. I've already seen Facebook posts of guys falling out of the, the tree or being saved because of a faulty tree stand or a wrong step. So don't be an idiot. Wear your safety harness. Very important reminders. Thank you for that, Dan. Um, yep. And then I'll close things up here by also, again, plugging our little contest. If right. you have been enjoying Wired Hunt, if you could post a little something on Facebook or on a forum or message board, just mentioning the podcast, why you like it, and including a link, we would it would mean the world to us. We really appreciate that. And if you want to take a screenshot of that, email it to me at mark at wiredhunt.com. I'll get you in that drawing, and we will get some pretty sweet prizes out to one of you next week. And as usual, then, we always do appreciate the reviews on iTunes. Thank you to the 73 of you so far who have left awesome reviews for us there. That helps Keep a ton. Keep them coming. Yeah. Keep them coming. Absolutely. Speaking of appreciation, of course, we also need to thank our partners who help make this show possible. So big thank you to Sika Gear, Trophy Ridge, Bear Archery, Redneck Blinds, Carbon Express Arrows, Huntsoft, Lacrosse Boots, Big and J, Long Range Attractants, and the Whitetail Institute of North America. I'll tell you what, this is a mouthful too. I can't really talk too well, and that's a lot of words to say. <laughs> hey, we, we better thank our wives too because it's coming up on fall widow season. True. So, uh, so honey, I know you're not going to ever listen to this, but uh, sorry for my absence the next two months. Yeah, yeah. Make sure all of us, we should be making sure to thank our significant others big time because this is that time of year, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, definitely. So true. And, um, you know, of course, visit wiredhunt.com slash episode 24 to view some of the different links from some of the things we talked about today. I'll make sure to link to your blog, Dan, and some of the different things I've written about recently that are relevant to our conversation. So all that said, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thanks for dealing with, um, you know, our slight delay in getting the podcast out to you recently, for dealing with my um, questionable talking tactics today as I talk with a swollen (laughs) mouth. And uh, as always, for for supporting Wired to Hunt and being here with us. And until next week, good luck hunting and stay Wired to Hunt. Hunt.